did last week and then continue on. We're looking at verses 43 and following. Matthew chapter 5. Follow along as I read. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them who love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the heathen so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, who is in heaven, is perfect. Jesus is going to teach about love in verse 43, or verse 44. And it's a love that is a Christian ethic that is going to be impossible for a normal person to have. Unless that love is produced in him, or planted in him by God himself. Jesus is covering numerous topics that were the false teaching of the day. And so this is the last example in this series that Jesus is correcting the false teaching of his day by the scribes and the Pharisees. It's also the last example where Jesus is going to teach about a righteousness that must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if one is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This verse 43, you've heard it, it's been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, was based by the scribes and the Pharisees on Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God enjoins us to love our neighbors, and we're to do so. He tells us how to do it in the verse. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. However, the scribes and the Pharisees left that part out. So the big question in Jesus' day is, who's your neighbor? How do you define neighbor? Literally, the word means one who is near. And as usual, the Pharisees explained away the strict demands of the law, and they limited the word neighbor. The first century narrowed the usage of the word neighbor to friends or other close people or those related to them uh, by blood. Now, some were closer to the truth in that they saw a neighbor as one that was a, an, a fellow Israelite, a fellow countryman. The restriction that they placed, the scribes and the Pharisees, placed upon the word neighbor is seen in the contrast. Neighbor was anyone who treated you well or was friendly disposed towards you, contrasted with who? Enemy, someone who didn't treat you well. Under the Old Testament, Neighbor had a general and a wide use, meaning anybody you came into contact with. In other words, respecting your fellow man. Now, if you look at, for instance, the Ten Commandments, 
It says that you shouldn't covet anything that belonged to your neighbor, especially, you know, your neighbor's wife. That didn't give you the warrant to covet your enemy's wife. So it was used in a general and a wide sense. There was also a narrow and specific sense in which the word neighbor was used. For instance, the Egyptians were called the Israelites' neighbor because they lived in close proximity to one another. So what this did in the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees is they were differentiating between people, and that was encouraged to differentiate between people. And so what they did then is they condoned a hateful attitude towards someone who wasn't your neighbor. Basically, they said, you can hate your enemy. Now, nowhere, let me repeat, nowhere in the Old Testament are we ever told to hate our enemy. This was an invention of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was a false interpretation. Actually, it was a, a false interpretation based upon a false inference. But it was a popular saying among the Jews, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So they, the Jewish people took the word neighbor to be exclusive. They thought it meant we are to only love our neighbors, which gave them, they thought, the permission, the duty to hate their enemies. An enemy to them was someone who was not a neighbor. So it gave them permission to hate them. What this did, one's attitude and behavior towards other, another person was dependent on who that person was. Was he a neighbor? Was he an enemy? And so love was reserved for those you got along with. So there was a sharp contrast set up between friend and foe. It actually created a mindset in which it was easy to differentiate between people and then treat them accordingly, love or hate. And hence the question, who's my neighbor? This actually erected a barrier or a wall of separation, especially between Jew and Gentile. But it didn't stop there. I mentioned last week that there were those that said, what about the good Israelites and the bad Israelites? Those who followed the law and those who didn't follow the law. What about tax collectors? What about harlots? Secular history has taught us how bitterly the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles in turn despised the Jews. So there was indeed, as Paul said, a middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile. There was intense animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. A couple of examples I gave last week. There was a monastic community that lived by the Dead Sea. Here's what they taught. Love brothers, hate the outsiders. An actual quote. Here's a quote from the Pharisees that was, has been discovered. A Pharisee actually taught, If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out, for it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor. But this man is not your neighbor. 
taught by a Pharisee. And so identifying who your neighbor was was an issue in the time of Christ. Was my neighbor just a fellow Israelite? Did that include proselytes? Jesus was even asked that question in Luke chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Who's my neighbor? And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus taught us that your neighbor is anyone who you are in a position to help. Even your enemy is your neighbor. Samaritans and Jews, they were enemies. The Jewish people called the Samaritans half-breeds and dogs. And so Jesus, in Luke 10.36, basically told us we shouldn't be asking, who is my neighbor? But we should act as a neighbor to the one who is in need. Which is? Anyone. Anyone. And so what Jesus is going to teach us in verse 44, he's going to correct the false interpretation of the day. He's going to tell us that we need to love our enemies. Notice the, but I say unto you. Here's what you've been hearing. Here's what you've been taught. But I say unto you. And the I is emphatic. So Jesus is going to correct the corrupt teaching of the day. He's going to tell us what God's word actually means and what he taught. And so he's putting emphasis on the I in the Greek is emphatic. It's the emphasis is on who is speaking and what he's about to say. Now in each of the previous sections, the Pharisees and the scribes had limited the scope of God's word or lowered the standard and corrupted the teaching so as to make it easier to obey. But the proper understanding of the word neighbor in the law is Leviticus 19.34. And when you compare that to Leviticus chapter 19, you should have been able to come to the conclusion that anyone is your neighbor. Leviticus 19.34 says, The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Does that sound familiar? Same thing that Leviticus 19 said. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Jesus is not restricting the word neighbor to friends and acquaintances and those you live next to. He includes enemies in it. He's purging the love your neighbor as yourself law from the corrupt teaching of the day. Jesus is teaching who our neighbor is in Luke 10. And now he's telling us that we need to love our enemies. We're to help our enemies. What is love? Love is need-oriented. Showing love is need-oriented. Love is an action word. Love expresses itself in action. And Jesus is teaching us we need to love our enemies. One who is an enemy of you personally. And of course we're going to go on and we're going to find out that the example is God himself. We are to love as God loved those who were his enemies. 
And before we came to Christ, before we asked God to forgive us on the basis of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, we were enemies. But yet God still sent his son to die. And when Jesus spoke this, it must have been a shock to those listening, especially to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were proud, they were prejudiced, they were judgmental, spiteful, hateful, and vengeful. They thought that they must have thought this sounded foolish. They don't no doubt thought that to not hate those who deserve to be hated, well, that wouldn't be righteousness at all. But Jesus teaches us we are to love our enemies. Personal enemies. Those who are persecuting us. Those who hate righteousness. And so Jesus refutes their false inference of hating your enemies. Now what kind of love is this? Just quickly as a, as a for review. This word love is the Greek word agape. And the New Testament uses two different words for love. There were two in the Greek language that the biblical writers never used. But the two that are used in the Bible is philia, which means to like or strong affection. We get the word philanthropy from that word, love of men. Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. Philia, strong affection or liking, strong emotion. This is the highest type of love that any natural man, an unsafe man, is capable of. The highest love that man by himself can have. Agape, however, is divine love. This is a never-changing love. It is a love that loves even when the object is unlovable. Were any of you unlovable before you came to Christ? Yes. It is a love that loves for no reason at all. A giving love, or a, we would say a love of action. For God so loved the world that he did something. He gave his only begotten son. A love that keeps loving when there are reasons to discourage that love. It is a love that loves when there is no possibility of being loved back. A good definition of this kind of love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you want to turn there, we'll just read these verses. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's often called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. And here starts the definition. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love, love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not its own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. 
bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never faileth. Pretty good definition. It's a whole bunch of sermons right there in that definition of agape love. This kind of love that Jesus is saying we need to love our enemies with, this is a love that seeks another person's welfare. And it always involves action. And may I say this, that this love is a choice. To love this way is an act of the will. For married couples, you need to move beyond that love of philia, the strong emotion, the strong affection, the liking, if you would, that, that feeling you have in your gut. As the years go on, the physical attractiveness wanes, and that person begins to be become more familiar with your faults and your weaknesses, there comes a point where we have to have an agape love for our spouse where we choose to love them despite their weaknesses, faults. Despite the fact that the hair is starting to turn gray and the stomach is starting to sag, it is an act of your will to choose to love this way. And it's the kind of love that only believers can have because God is the one who perfects this love in us. What is interesting is that when we take these two words, Jesus did not use the word philia. This love, agape love, is not liking. There's a difference between the two. Liking is to have an emotional feeling towards another person. We cannot like everyone. We are commanded to love everyone. This agape love is not a matter of the feelings, but a matter of the will. This makes it possible, even when we do not like somebody, we can express this godlike love in action, even when we do not feel like it. And I use the illustration, I hope I get this right, it was Corey Tenbrook. Corey Tenbrun, who was abused by German soldiers, would often have speaking engagements. And in one such speaking engagement, she happened to see in the audience one of the very German soldiers who had persecuted and abused her. And at the end of these speaking engagements, she would often be in the front people would line up to come and maybe have her sign something or shake her hand. And in the line, coming up to greet her, was this German soldier. That German soldier had gotten saved and wanted to tell Corey Tenzel that. And as she got, as this soldier got closer and closer, you can imagine the feelings that were welling up inside of her. She did not like this soldier, could not like this soldier. But she knew she was commanded to love this soldier. 
pretty soon there he was in front of her. He put out his hand, told her what had happened, put out his hand and wanted to shake her hand. She had a choice to make. Everything inside of her said, turn and run. Hate this guy. But the love of God perfected in her. She was able to lift her hand up and shake that German soldier's hand. Because it was a choice, an act of her will, to show this agape-type love to this soldier. When we think about this agape love, we have to understand that it is the love that is demonstrated by God in Christ dying for sinners. And usually in the New Testament, when God's love is spoken about, the illustration or example of Christ's death is also given in the same context. This tells us that the biblical writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, thought that the love of God was especially seen on the cross of Calvary. The cross is the measure of God's love. Some would say it is the supreme example of God's love. That's why John 3.16 is so significant. For God so loved who? The world. Remember John is writing his gospel to believing Jews, to, to Christians. When you see the word world there, don't think in your mind every single individual that's ever been born. Think in your mind of two categories, Jew and Gentile. Often the biblical writers use the word world to, to include both Jew and Gentile. And that's why that's so significant, because the Jews thought salvation was exclusively for them. John 3.16 is saying, no, it's for Jew and Gentile alike. Romans 5.8, but God commended, God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The supreme example of God's love for us is that Jesus Christ came and became the propitiation for our sins, according to 1 John 4.10. This is in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The supreme example of this agape love, the same love that we are to love our enemies with, is that God's love sent Christ to die for his enemies. God's love sent Christ to die for sinners. Those who that were by nature and by choice repugnant to a holy God. give you a little of an example that kind of exhibits God's love a little bit. And, and, and this is, it falls so short. But think about yourself being a lifeguard. You're a lifeguard. You're going to rescue someone from drowning. You're there seated on your perch and you see, you know, let me just give you some examples. You see a beautiful girl is drowning. You see a mother with her children on the beach, drowning. 
You see a good person, someone you know to be a good person, someone maybe who has helped you. Would you risk your life to save them? Most of us would. Yeah, probably. But let's say you're seated on your perch looking out over the, the waves and you see a criminal. A detestable person. The most contemptible person you know. A cheat, a pervert, a murderer, a thief, a rapist, or an enemy. Someone who's wronged you. Would you risk your life to save that person? Or would you say, like the world says today, well, he's just getting what he deserves. You see, this second example shows somewhat of the love of God in sending his son to die for sinners. Those who have broken his law, those who shook their fists at a holy God and said, I'm going to live the way I want to live. Romans 5 Verses 7 and 8, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, did you get that? For if when we, you, were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This shows agape love, God's love for us. It was while we were enemies of God. It was while a holy God, hating sin, saw us breaking his law that he sent his son to die in a sinner's place. But let me try to drive it home even a little bit It is not just that we were sinners, not just that we were enemies. We were absolutely helpless, without strength, and had no ability to do anything about our condition whatsoever. That God reached out into those waves and saved us. You under you realize that. If you're here today as a saved person, you've come to Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins, that you could not understand the teaching of Jesus, you could not understand the gospel apart from God's saving work. 1 John 8.43, John, or, or John 8.43, John 6.45, Jesus says, you know, unless the Father reveals these things to you, you can't understand them. Remember Peter, Matthew 16, 17? Jesus, or Peter gave that great confession. Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed against this to you. My Father revealed it to you. So here's the first truth I want you to understand that shows how great God loves you if you are a saved person. The natural man, the sinner, has ears to physically hear the gospel, but he hears not the gospel spiritually. 
unless God causes him to hear. Did you get that? You're sitting here today as a saved person because God opened your ears because he loves you. Number two, the natural man, the sinner, cannot receive the Holy Spirit unless God gives the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 to 17. No one can be saved by receiving the Spirit of God by any act of his will. The Holy Spirit blows where he wants. John chapter 3. You are seated here today saved because God loved you enough to put his spirit in you to regenerate your soul. Number three. The natural man, the sinner, cannot by his own will submit to the law of God and will always, always, always rebel against it. That's Romans 8, 7 to 8. So God showed his love towards you and that he gave you the will to be able to submit to his law. Number four. The natural man, the sinner, cannot understand God's truth that is necessary for salvation. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And so you are seated here today as a result of God's love and that he opened your heart to be able to attend to the things that were preached in the sermon that was preached the day that you were saved. Number five, the natural man, the sinner, cannot and will not stop sinning. 2 Peter 2.14 One of the greatest things, I think, about salvation is that once we have been saved, we have the ability to say no to sin. The Holy Spirit gives us victory over sin. Isn't that a great thing? Lastly, the natural man, the sinner, cannot come to Christ without God drawing him. Folks, this is where we see the great love of God. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No man can come unto me except the Father who hath sent me draw him. The measure of God's love is seen in these truths. You were absolutely helpless, hopeless, and no ability to save yourself. Yet God reached down, opened your ears, opened your heart, gave him your spirit, gave you his spirit, and drew you to Christ. That's love. Unable to hear and understand God's word unable to do anything about receiving the Spirit on our own, unable to submit to the law, unable to cease from sinning, hating God, loving our sin. It was at that time that Christ died for us. God drew us to Christ. Is that not love? Jesus says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. And our response to that 
should be, that's impossible. Isn't it? That's impossible. Only those who have come to Christ, only those who have the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, which produces love in us, and God perfects that love in us, will we be able to love our enemies? Jesus goes on, he says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Oh, is that hard, huh? Ever been cursed? not easy to respond that way. We must love people for who they are, not what they are. We must love people because they are people that are made in the image of God. Not love them for the fact that they're a sinner. Every person, regardless of their wickedness, is a sinner who has fallen from the image of God and needs to be forgiven by God's grace and saved through Christ. And so the, our response to loving our enemies is replying to bitter and angry words with kind and loving words. You ought to try this in your marriage. You want to confuse an argument really quick? You respond with kind and loving words, not bitter and angry words. So we are to bless those who curse us, and we're to do good to them that hate you. Let me read you an illustration. It actually comes out of, I think, one of John MacArthur's commentaries. In 1567, King Philip II of Spain appointed the Duke of Alba as governor of the lower part of the nation. The Duke was a bitter enemy of the newly emerging Protestant Reformation. His rule was called the Reign of Terror, and his council was called the Bloody Council because it had ordered the slaughter of so many Protestants. It is reported that one man who was sentenced to die for his biblical faith managed to escape during the dead of winter. As he was being pursued by a lone soldier, the man came to a lake where the ice was thin and cracking. Somehow, he managed to get safely across. But as soon as he reached the other side, he heard his pursuer screaming, the one who was going to recapture him. The soldier had fallen through the ice and was about to drown. At the risk of being captured, tortured, and eventually killed, or being drowned himself, the man went back across the lake and rescued his enemy because the love of Christ constrained him to do it. He knew he had no other choice if he was to be faithful to his Lord. And I have to ask myself the question, would I do that? And would you do that? Some of us would look back, see him drowning, and think, oh, God's been good to me today. I'm going to get away. This man turned back and helped his enemy. That is a practical application of love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good them to them that hate you. 
So when people are doing spiteful actions against us, we're to return with good actions. And then it says, pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Those people who despise us, despise the way we live, persecute us because of righteousness. You know what persecution is? Persecution is somebody's reaction to God's truth. Whether it's by word or by life. If we live a righteous life, we are going to be persecuted. Righteousness seen in a life will unmask the wickedness in another person's life. It's difficult to love somebody who's persecuting you. Barclay said, we cannot go on hating another man in the presence of God. He's talking about prayer. The surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for the man we are tempted to hate. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Bring them to the throne of God and pray for them. You know, we have examples of this. The ultimate example is Jesus Christ. Dying on the cross. Roman soldiers have nailed him to the cross and Jesus said what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 16, 16, as they're stoning him, Stephen says, lay not this sin to their charge. David, a man after God's own heart, just read the Old Testament about Saul and Absalom, what they did to David and David's response. We need to have that same kind of attitude. There was a Scottish reformer by the name of George Weishart, who was a contemporary friend of John Knox. He was sentenced to die as a heretic because the executioner knew of Weishart's Weishart's selfless ministering to hundreds of people who were dying in the plague. He hesitated in carrying out the sentence. When Weishart saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face, he went over and he kissed him on the cheek and he said, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. to remember that those who are our enemies, that those who are persecuting us, that those who are cursing us, they are doing it because they are under the control of the God of this world. And they are in slavery to their sin nature from which you have been freed from. But 
But this is the response that a child of God is to have. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. If you are a child of God here this morning, and I'm not <coughs> everybody's heart, this is the teaching we should be following. Not verse 43. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he's going to get it, going to give a couple more examples, which we'll get into next week. May I ask this question? <coughs> do you do this? Is this your response when you're mistreated? At work? Hopefully not at home. At school? In the neighborhood? At the store? What's your response? when you're at the grocery store and someone cuts in front of you with a full basket of groceries. I know what the old man in me wants to do. But the new man created after Christ Jesus is to respond like Father, we thank you for your truth, your word, how we ask that you will give us the ability to love our enemies like you have loved us. I pray in Jesus' name.